Stop putting epistemological knowledge in a box. Science can't progress without religious tradition, as we saw with uh, modernism. Biology can't be understood without history. Like, how are you going to understand the theory of evolution without looking at history? Like, art and engineering are two sides of the same coin. Stop separating them. Why do you think that so many physicists are also amazing musicians? Like, they're stop putting knowledge in a little box, okay? Like, st life does not fit into little categories. Life didn't. Life does not fit into hashtags, okay? about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. This team, we fight for that itch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that itch. We claw with our fingernails for that itch. Hello, beautiful people. It's another day. It's another Tuesday. It's another day for the Matt's Mindset Podcast. And I'm your host, Matthew Harris, here to help you stand on the shoulders of giants so you can achieve your dreams. It's, uh, we'll start with a quote from Rick Rubin. It's helpful to view currents in culture without feeling obligated to follow their direction. Instead, notice them as you might notice a waft of warm wind. Move with it, but not be of it. So Rick Rubin and quote, according to MTV, the most important music producer of the last 20 years. Culture is a funny thing. History and culture often go hand in hand one shaping the other. Epochs are shaped by the currents of culture and the people who go on to shape that culture. I touched a bit on this in my America series, but I really wanted to do a broad look at the undercurrents that have affected history and led us to where we are today. It's a bit of a disclaimer that what I'm gonna discuss during this video is gonna be a bit Eurocentric, relatively Eurocentric as A, that's where the majority of my expertise lies. So I don't want to kind of pretend that I know more than I do or try to incorporate parts of not so Eurocentric like Asian history, even though it's very rich and important into this video when I would kind of just be trying to connect dots that I personally don't really have the knowledge or expertise to do. I think there's probably a lot of great sources out there that can do it better. And so yeah, while the rich histories of the Arab world and India and China, Japan especially, all have their massive cultural implications on the world because they developed uniquely from the West. They developed kind of in vacuums in a certain sense and so have their own very rich, unique cultures. The current world system is fashioned in the image of American idealism and by extension, by extension, Eurocentrism. So as I said, I'll be tracking kind of those more Eurocentric cultural movements for the purposes of this video. And as I learn more about Chinese and Indian and Japanese culture, I'd love to do future videos on those types of culture and cultural undercurrents. But uh, so with that out of the way, you know, don't come at me in the comment section because I'm being Eurocentric. So without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, we begin in 27 BC with Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian, having brought to the end the Roman Civil War and ushering in an era of economic and cultural prosperity. He reformed the military, created infrastructure projects to create jobs, improved standard of living, expanded territory, increased free trade between the then kingdoms of the world. I mean, like, sounds pretty good. I'd, I'd vote for him. And this is uh, this period of time starting in 27 BC is what's known as the Pax Romana and or the Roman peace, which lasted until around 180 AD. So uh, why did it end? Economic instability, 
rampant inflation, a widening wealth gap, which led to social and political unrest, dilution, for lack of a better word, of national identity, like the, the kind of the idea of nationalism or a nation didn't really exist yet, but for lack of a better way to understand it, national identity and a lack of shared goals and political corruption and instability within the Roman government, which weakened its ability to respond effectively to all these existential threats. And, uh, you know, so just stop me whenever this starts sounding familiar. The Pax Romana was characterized by a strong central government and military efficient administration and a common legal system and a shared cultural identity all of which facilitated the free movement of people and goods across the then known world. But, uh, so once again, stop me if anything uh, starts to sound familiar. But as mentioned, Rome collapsed and uh, continued to decline around 200 AD. And eventually the Western Roman Empire just completely collapsed, leaving a power vacuum and leading to the emergence of the Middle Ages or Dark Ages. And so as mentioned above, it's important to note that most of the Arab world and Asia continued to thrive during this period, as the, did the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire. So, for example, we don't use Roman numerals today, we use Arabic numbers. Like, can you imagine trying to do particle physics with uh, Roman numerals, like trying to add two Vs and a, and a IIX? Like, uh, yeah, so Rome was great, but it didn't, it wasn't the end all be all. But my point is not to digress the Middle Ages were characterized by political instability and decentralization with power shifting back to local lords and kingdoms. And it marked a significant decline in the standard of living for the average person and a decline in the stagnation of cultural, scientific and economic development. And it can be summed up in two words, really just, you know, Middle Ages, not good. (laughs) Like, and this lasted for a while until uh, finally giving birth to the Renaissance, which literally means rebirth in French. And so that started around 1380. So probably around like 400 or 380, the Middle Ages started. So basically a thousand years of stagnation, just a thousand years of we, part of the issue was the... Catholic Church, the church was stepped in to fill that power vacuum left by the Roman Empire. So it was a power vacuum as well as kind of a meeting crisis. And the Catholic Church stepped in and while they did a great many things, not really going to get into it here, but they also kind of because of church dogma, kind of because of the nature of religion, which I touched upon last week, it was very dogmatic. And so people thought that all of Revelation had been revealed. There was no point in learning any new knowledge. All the knowledge had been given to us already from the Greeks, from classical antiquity, and as well as from God. Like there was no reason to try to learn new things because we already had everything. Like it was kind of the, that's why it was this period of tremendous stagnation. So it was about a thousand years of stagnation before we had the Renaissance, and which is characterized by renewed interest in classical learning and humanistic values, such as individualism, human potential, the pursuit of knowledge and beauty, Generally, generally some good stuff there. And we as a human spirit and culture had a renewed hope in the future in exploration, discovery, artistic pursuits, creativity, economic development. And the Renaissance eventually, so starting in about 1300, gave way to the Enlightenment period in the 1700s. So we had two back-to-back periods of good stuff, basically Renaissance and Enlightenment. And that was beginning in the 1700s which was, uh, there was like kind of a, a high middle ages period in between there, but it isn't really characterized by anything that like groundbreaking. Like we, we did have, it was kind of folded into the Renaissance. It wasn't necessarily cultural, but we did have like kind of the 30 years war and the creation of the, the, the beginning of the creation of the modern day nation state. And I go in much deeper detail into that in actually the first episode of my America series. So I'm not gonna touch on it here. But the enlightenment started in the 1700s. It was building on the Renaissance with even more emphasis placed on reason and rationality and individualism, equality, the big one, the rejection of a social hierarchy. Like, so the fact that the 
lords, like you had the lords and you had kind of the knights, the barons, like it all kind of flowed from the king all the way down at the bottom, you had the serfs. And so it was kind of a rejection of the social hierarchy because you had someone like John Locke who came up with the idea of the tabula rosa, as he would describe it, which is the quote unquote blank slate. So the, like we were talking about how knowledge couldn't really be, there was no new knowledge. Like that was kind of the idea is that there was no point in doing any sort of scientific research because there was no point. We already had all the knowledge. And they also thought that the people who were born as nobles, as royals, like people who are in the upper crust of society were actually born with all the knowledge that they needed. And it was simply drawn out from them by tutoring it by study. So if you were born, a you know, a Lord's son and you got a tutor, Basically, what they thought the tutor's job was just drawing the knowledge out of you that you already had. And if you were born a serf, there was no point educating you because you weren't born with that knowledge. And it's, it's almost like a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you're not educated, then obviously you're not going to be able to read and you're not going to be able to learn anything. You're not going to be able to really make those web of connections. And I'm sure there were people who were born with high IQs in the serf class who were very smart at whatever they did. But it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy of we're not going to teach them because there's nothing like they don't have any of that knowledge anyway. The not and with a Lord's son or something, they were saying, oh, we're going to teach him because he already has the knowledge. And then, of course, they would go on to be educated and literate and smart because they're being tutored. So it was it was a self-fulfilling prophecy in that respect, like a catch 22. And John Locke was kind of the first to say, no, I think everyone is more or less born a blank slate. And we, if we educate everybody, then everybody has the ability to be smart. Like, and so that was kind of crazy to think about, but that was a brand new, maybe not a brand new idea, but it was like something that was much needed at that time. And so a big one, rejection of the social hierarchy, the embracing of science as a primary way to uncover universal truths and grow epistemological knowledge and epistemological knowledge. We talked about how we grow that last week. And so uh, and another big one, big optimism for the future of progress and improvement. So the, the belief that through reason and science, we could overcome ignorance, prejudice, superstition, and religious dogma leading to a better society. So you had people like John Locke, people like Voltaire. If you read Candide, it's basically like him saying, once again, this idea of you had people, his his mentor in the book says, Kendi's mentor keeps saying, oh, we live in the best po- of all possible worlds. We live in the best of all possible worlds. So like anytime something would go bad for Candide, he would just say, oh, like we live in the best possible of all worlds. Like this almost like, like basically like saying like a bit of like nihilism of like, and you know, like horrible things were happening to Candide. And he kept saying like, oh, we live in the best possible of all worlds. Like there's nothing you can do about it. And at the end of the story, not the spoiler alert, he, Candide basically finally says to him after living kind of this adventure says, yes, but we must cultivate our own gardens. So basically like the refutation being, yes, like we, we live in, you know, the world that we live in, but at the same time, we have the ability to overcome ignorance, prejudice, superstition, and religious dogma. Like we have to cultivate our own gardens. So that was kind of the big, big movement of the Enlightenment. And so the Enlightenment led to a reaction in the form of Romanticism in the early 1800s, which was kind of just took the same optimism of Enlightenment of like, we can create a better society, but kind of change the focus, like wasn't so much on reason and rationality, but was more focused on personal emotion and individual experience versus like a universal objective truth. Like you kind of had in the enlightenment, like Rene Descartes saying like, oh, the only thing I can be sure of is that I exist. I can't be sure of anything else. Like I think, and therefore I am. And so like they were very wrapped up in the idea of like universal truth. Like what is, what is like a universal truth that we can all stand on? And so like, that was kind of what a lot of enlightenment thinkers were obsessed with was like, what is something that we know for sure to be true? And the romantics were much less focused on that. They're much more focused on like subjective experience and a return to the appreciation of the natural world of nature, beauty of nature, beauty of creation, a interest in the supernatural. So kind of like because of the reaction against religious dogma during the enlightenment, 
we, a lot of those, kind of the zeitgeist was against anything supernatural, anything godly, anything mystical. And so the romantics were kind of like saying, like, yes, like religion was bad during our time, during the enlightenment in the middle ages, but we don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that the supernatural, the mystical, the sublime in art, you know, doesn't exist. It's, so it was kind of a reconnection with the sublime with uh, a celebration of creativity and imagination. And now romanticism then, so started in the early 1800s, progressed into modernism in the late 1800s, early 1900s, which was a radical break. Modernism was a radical break from tradition and convention. And modernism was kind of a continuation of romanticism, but was like, not like a 180, but like I said, broke from kind of the, like, like anything that had done, that had been done previously. It like took the idea of the subjective experience of the individual and like put on a crack. Like it was like you had, uh, I talked about this like briefly last week with James Joyce, where he was really he he was he was an irish writer at first he was kind of not obsessed but was really writing about kind of the not the pros and cons but writing about his experience with uh, catholicism in ireland and kind of about how it wasn't the i guess the the issue with trying to describe his own subjective experience and the experience and kind of the dogmatism of the church and then he his magnum opus Ulysses was basically him trying to take you through a day and what it was like to be him, but like fully, like he wasn't like saying, oh, this is what happened and this is what happened. Like it, it wasn't like a, a coherent narrative. It wasn't a hero's journey. Like it was more of literally like, this is what it's like to be me. Like he was trying to like put you in his mind. And so if you ever read it or open, it's very random and disjointed because that's how kind of everyone's existence is it's like you have a bunch of random thoughts and then you'll be like what was i doing and then you'll go about doing so he'll be like a page in the book will just be him being like walking like like walking on the street look at those shutters why are they yellow i don't know why they're yellow like that's such a horrid color oh my god look at that girl like it's like <laughs> it's like and then he'll like kind of be like and then i arrived at the shop or whatever so like it's very he was really trying to take you into that and that was him and like marcel proust and all those people were really diving deeply deeply into what it was like to be a subjective self and then you you even had a henry miller who that was a little bit later, but he had like the the famous books, the Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, which were discussing his trials and travails in Paris as a writer. And it was pretty like he used a lot of really foul language. And so that was actually a landmark Supreme Court case for free speech. But he kind of had this idea of if a man could put down what was truly his truth, then the world would go to smash and no amount of, you know, grinding or, or lobbying would be able to change it. And he was kind of proven right because of the landmark Supreme Court case changed the world. And so like it's, there's a lot of really interesting writing and, and art going around uh, during that, the modernist era. But the, uh, the, the culture was really characterized by a preoccupation with the alienation, the growing alienation of modern life, modern being at this point, the 20th century and a sense of disillusionment with the complexity and ambiguity of, of life. But there was also like a crisis of meaning occurring because religion began to fully fall out of favor as a means by which the vast majority of people found their meaning in their day-to-day -day lives. And like I said, like with James Joyce writing about how like his struggles with Catholicism in Ireland and in the late 19th century, even Friedrich Nietzsche would write God is dead and, and we have killed him. Like the concept of God is, is dead and we have killed him. And hum, uh, humanity looked to science for the way forward as, as a beacon of progress and optimism for like a, a utopian society. Like you had uh, socialism and communism becoming very popular. Like you had Marx and Engels uh, publish, obviously in the late 19th century, the Communist Manifesto, uh, the 
so the Communist Manifesto and then Das Kapital. So like really like trying to think about how to create a utopian society here on Earth. And so as the 20th century dawned with science, rationality and humanism firmly in the driver's seat, a number of projects began like communism, um, all with a utopian vision in mind, unconstrained by this was kind of the issue. They were all unconstrained by like a traditional morality, like modernism was really a break from, from everything unconventional. It was everything uh, that came before. And while incredible progress was made, both socially, scientifically, culturally, economically, like we got penicillin at the time, we got all sorts of vaccinations, polio. Uh, the era was characterized by previously unseen crisis and catastrophe as well. So it was kind of like we let Pandora out of the box, like humanity learn the harsh lessons that atrocities can be committed in the name of God and religion, as they have been, but equal, if not worse, atrocities can be committed in the name of nationalism and progress. And so such a couple of these include the eugenics, like the eugenics movement, which is big all over the world in the United States and in Nazi Germany, famously. Uh, so eugenics movement, uh, unethical experimentation, such as the American Tuskegee syphilis experiment, the Nazi twin experiments, and all the Nazi experiments and eugenics projects during World War II and before, the infamous experiments of the Japanese Detachment Unit 731. So there was a lot of pro think projects were, that were being put forward in the name of progress, but were really as I said, I'm constrained by morality, so became very, very, very uh, destructive. So these atrocities coupled with the trauma of two world wars, which are unlike anything the world had ever seen, and just go back to my World War I, World War II episodes of my America series, had a profound impact on writers and thinkers, leading to works such as Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, all incredible books. And they can all be seen through this lens of men who had seen, I believe they're all World War II vets, and they had seen just such incredible trauma, really. And just like the protagonist in Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield, humanity had emerged from a kind of immature childhood and was now wrestling with forces it barely understood. Like it had decided that it was ready for metaphorical adulthood and that we could do this thing without the concept of God. And we became incredibly disillusioned from the results of that experiment. And uh, as such, postmodernism was then born in the late 15, 15, uh, 1950s to early 1960s. And so postmodernism was our reaction against modernism, as most of uh, these cultural movements are. And we, so we had thought we could do it all on our own and science and progress would never lead us astray. And rationality was man's highest virtue, reason, purpose, self-esteem. That was kind of the rallying cry of the modernist, early modernist movement. And that uh, narrative that the, uh, as Nietzsche would say, the ubermensch or the rational superman would lead us to a brighter future. And when it didn't, the human spirit kind of developed like defense mechanisms as you do when you go through trauma. Yeah, like cynicism, irony, self-reflexivity, skepticism of grand narratives or overarching themes of history and society, rejection of progress or universal values, as well as skepticism of government to bring about positive social change. Those are some of the, uh, the latent functions of uh, postmodernism. Uh, post and so at its, at its heart, Postmodernism, especially in America and beyond, had its roots in the right place, but it was uh, like a place of peace, love, self-awareness. But this newfound desire for peace over competition, love over hate, and self-awareness over arrogance was still like very fledging. It was still very immature. Like we kind of knew that was the direction we wanted to move in. That the, the most the generation at the time was knew that those were the values that they held dear, but in the words of modernist writer Ayn Rand, ironic, ironically enough, uh, it's the abstractions of postmodernism were not grounded into reality. So to get a bit anecdotal to kind of explain the problem with the postmodern movement, uh, when I was younger, when I was in college, and even, yeah, in college, when I was a bit, I was a bit of a pothead, and I you know, just loved to smoke weed, and especially it, 
not especially, but definitely by myself because I could go off on these rambling abstract tangents kind of in my head, which would actually take me to these really cool conclusions. But the issue was I couldn't really access this state when I wasn't under the influence of drugs. And it wasn't really until I cleared out the need for any sort of chemical buffer, whether that was weed, whether that was alcohol, and between myself and reality that I was able to enter this wonderful state of creativity and optimism naturally without the need to chemically alter my own biochemistry. And I think that's something that is kind of a uh, self-perpetuating myth about the like Hemingway or some famous writers or artists who are self-destructive and it's almost romanticized that you almost you can you're like a a struggling or a uh, a pain genius or like someone who like i think even like rick and morty it's like oh it's what's your addiction it's like uh, alcoholism morphine addiction and they like chuckle about it because like this i guess the smarter you are the more that you can see the world for all it is and the more kind of painful it is because you don't have the uh it's like the Plato's allegory of the cave, like you have to look at the harsh truths, but that's really like, I think a, uh, a fallacy. It's like a self-perpetuating myth that isn't true. Like I know there's a story of when Aaron Sorkin, who's uh, one of the most famous screenwriters where he, he wrote uh, like Moneyball, he wrote West Wing, he wrote uh, Molly's Game, A Few Good Men, and he was a, uh, cocaine addict he would he was just a huge proponent or not proponent but user of cocaine and he wrote most of his most famous movies while under the influence of cocaine and when he finally stopped he was really concerned that he wouldn't be able to write as well and carrie fisher who uh princess leia in, in star wars ended up uh, calling him when he had quit and called him because she had her own drug problem and said it's actually going to be better. Like, I just want you to know that I know what you're going through and it's actually going to be better than what you could have, what you were doing when you were on the influence of the drug. And so it's like that, it's kind of that narrative of you need to be in an altered state to create good art or to do your best work in the world. And I was able to, personally, I didn't never had a cocaine habit and never had anything like that, but um, I was like a, a big uh, pothead and I think that that it was a, it was a way that I could access kind of my abstract part of my brain and I was able to stop doing that and get into a practice of meditation and process my emotions in a healthy way and reach conclusions about my life and the nature of reality naturally and in the words of Fyodor Dostoevsky the 19th century Russian author Russian author Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing themselves. So, uh, and similar to what Freud said, when you have conflict and tragedy in a society, like school shootings, conflict, race violence, war, we, uh, when we have conflict in civilization, it's indicative of the fact that large swaths of the population is literally mentally ill. And even the people who are not mentally ill are negatively impacted by the chaos going around them on a daily basis on the broadcast news, which relentlessly repeats these narratives, causing even those of fairly sound mind to live in a state of fear and of the present and the future. So if people are fractals of society, then the countercultural movement, which was founded on the principles of love, freedom and peace, kind of evolved, but like not in a good way. Because similar to myself or Aaron Sorkin or Carrie Fisher, because no matter what your, how good your intentions are or how, how you think that you're doing this for the good of society based on the immature use of drugs, sex, free love without the bonds of relationships that are based on mutual respect and monogamy. It, this movement that kind of started from a place of love, freedom, and peace kind of developed into this naive shit show that had shadow elements and incredible darkness in it as well, such as the Charlie Manson family murders, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst by the Symbionese Liberation Army, just like crazy shit happening. And what the countercultural movement, postmodernism, failed to take into account in the postmodern era was nuance and because of the, the trauma of World War II 
and then by extension in Vietnam, identity politics really got their start during this era. But suffice to say, the countercultural movement was an entirely natural reaction caused by the trauma and the violence of two world wars. But kind of rather than dealing with the trauma, the generation got lost in a fantasy world of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And without taking into context the nuance and the need for a society which afforded them to live as such. So it's a little bit like what we're seeing today where you have people railing against the system, but they're kind of ignoring the fact that they're living in a society that affords them to do so. So like it's, I think it's correct to point out as I do and and I hope others do the flaws in a society. Like we, we, don't, we, we don't live in the best possible of all worlds, or at least it's good to think that we do, but we also need to cultivate our own gardens. But also taking that into consideration is it's just not intellectually honest to be lost in a world of drug, sex, and rock and roll and rail against the system and the pigs and whatever and the man and then not recognize kind of the need for the society that affords them to live as such at the same time, which is the nuance that is lost and continues to be lost today. And so while the underlying themes of peace, love, and freedom were in the right place, as I've said, the countercultural movement, postmodern movement really became a flash in the pan that quickly burns out and left in its wake in increased level of cynicism, irony, and even nihilism from which we have yet to recover from because the, like I said, the enlightenment and romanticism and even early modernism were all based on the idea of we are going in the right direction. We can, you, we have the tools to be able to create a brighter future, whether it's rationality, whether it's subjective experience, we're like science, we're moving in the right direction. And then with World War One and Two, that really we had a crisis of faith and a crisis of uh, incentive. We were like, I don't think we're actually moving in the right direction. Like we made a lot of progress, but we also did a lot of harm. And so postmodernism was really just this nihilistic, like, what is it all for? What is it worth it if God's not real and science can't bring us to the you know the promised land of utopia? Then what's it all for? And so we've really haven't recovered from that sense of nihilism. And history is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit. But even without being sure of quote unquote history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash. For reasons that no one really understands at the time, which and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazed and instead of going home, aiming the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour, wearing L.L. Bean shorts and Butte Shepherder's jacket, booming through the Treasure Island John Tunnel at the lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not quite sure which turn off to take when I got to the other end, but always stalling at the toll gate, too twisted to find neutral while I fumbled for change. But being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was, no doubt at all about that. It was madness in any direction at any hour, if not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda. You could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning, and that I think that was the handle, that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding a crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the, the wave finally broke and rolled back. I trust Thompson. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas, 1971. So that was the kind of the end of the, not the end of the countercultural movement, but the through the 60s and into the early 70s, that was really the flash in the pan that was the countercultural movement. And in the 70s, then you had the war on drugs and you had the Pentagon Papers. And the Pentagon Papers were really a big deal. 
this really codified the nihilism and cynicism that still just is like a corrosive acid in our society today. And they're a big deal because up until that point, both the citizens of the United States and kind of the world at large had been giving America the benefit of the doubt. Like there's a great quote by Winston Churchill that America inevitably does the right thing after exhausting all other options, which I think is a great quote. It's, you know, it's a great Churchill quote. It's pithy. Is, uh, and it can be applied to, I think, people. Like people always kind of do the right thing after exhausting all other options. But that's kind of how the U.S. Had been, had, been, had been and had been seen. It was a superpower that was looking out for itself, but at the end of the day, it was a benevolent superpower. It was looking out for the U.S. citizens and the world at large. And the Pentagon Papers uh, were published in the New York Times and eventually in the Washington Post. And it was kind of an Edward Snowden kind of situation, but on, on crack. And the Pentagon Papers were a classified study of the war in Vietnam and uh, commissioned by the Department of Defense included these main points. The United States had been secretly escalating its involvement in the war for years, despite public statements to the contrary. So they're lying to the public. The war was not winnable. And the government knew this, but continued to escalate and prolong the conflict. And this was a draft. So they they knew the war was unwinnable, and we knew this, and we continued to escalate despite lack of public support and despite the fact we were drafting people. And the government, the US government had lied to the public and to Congress. That's a big one. They'd lied in front of Congress under oath about the nature of the war and the progress that was being made. The government had secretly expanded the war into Laos and Cambodia, which is kind of a nuanced issue that we're not going to talk about here. I think that's it's it was not good that the that we that the government lied to the American public about expanding the war into Laos and Cambodia, but also from a strictly military perspective, we really needed. I think an issue with the war in Vietnam, <laughs> the war in Vietnam, as uh, Forrest Gump would say was it was not total war. We were very, we, have, we haven't had a total war since World War II because of just how traumatic it was. But I think when you're in a state of war, you kind of need to just be in a state of total war and not be flitting on the edges of something like that. And that's kind of was one of the issues with expanding the war into Laos and Cambodia. But uh, the issue with that is once again, they were lying to the American public about doing that. And the the government was aware that the war was causing significant harm to the Vietnamese people and had little popular support at home, but continued to fight it regardless. And so we can, once again, there's kind of the need for a little bit of nuance here because there is something to be said about the policy of containment, but this was really, the issue was less about what was happening, in my opinion, and more about the fact that the U.S. government was completely lying about what was happening to the American public and the world at large. So this was like a tower moment where not only the world, but the U.S. citizenry felt like kind of for the first time, they really couldn't trend it. Like, and that's the majority of the American public because you do have maybe the, the Asian American population, the Japanese American population that was in prison during uh, World War II, and you obviously have the African-American population because of things like the police brutality, Jim Crow, and the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, they kind of had always felt like you couldn't trust the government. But the this is the first time really that the majority of the country was faced with the fact that maybe the US government was not something that you could trust to do the right thing anymore. The the trust that the country had in its government was shattered. And unlike the snafu later on that became the second Iraq war under George Bush, this uh, this war, as I said, included a draft. Like you were conscripted to fight in this conflict sometimes, most of the time against your will, if you didn't want to fight. And it was turned out it was a war that the government knew was unwinnable and the government it became clear from the report conducted from by the, the Department of Defense, basically as a dossier for leadership, that the government did not have your best interests at heart. So, and just like a, this was the ethos that led to just a decade or so later, Ronald Reagan winning on the platform of political conservatism of 
basically dis among a lot of other things, uh, distrust of big government. Like the, as he would say, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And that resonated with a great many, many people. Ronald Reagan, August 12th, 1986. And that resonated with most of the country. And so the postmodern era, which started with kind of this naive optimism in hope, love, peace, and freedom, ended up devolving into this just shit show of drug abuse, promiscuous sex to try to bury really the trauma of what happened in the early 20th century and what was currently happening in Vietnam, which culminated and is still culminating now into a kind of radical cynicism that I think we've recovered from. So we, we right now really are Rome circa 180 AD, economic instability, rampant inflation, a widening wealth gap, which is leading to social and political unrest, a dilution of a national identity in the form of identity politics, buttressed by a press that was bought and sold decades ago, a lack of shared goals with political corruption and instability within our government, which has weakened our ability to respond effectively to the existential threats now facing us. And while this may, and while this may sound pretty dire, because of the lessons of history, we know that we have a choice at this moment. We are on the precipice. History would show us that continued decentralization and fragmentation will only lead to further stagnation. It's kind of, it's kind of catchy. I should uh, put that on a t-shirt or something. But uh, you have entrepreneurs, for example, like Balaji, I'm gonna completely butcher his last name, but he's a uh, Indian American entrepreneur, Balaji Srinivasan claiming that uh, the central bank is failing, the sky is falling, you need to get into the Bitcoin lifeboats, we're gonna have a massive decoupling and decentralization of power. And to, uh, as a good refutation of that point, I would actually point you to another Indian American entrepreneur, Jamath Palihapitiya, who uh, has a very good refutation of, of that, of why we're it'd be very difficult to get off the dollar standard because you have to look at it relatively because although the U.S. does have a lot of cracks in its uh, edifice, also you have to think about it relatively where if there was a certain country who was to get off the free floating currency that's pegged to the dollar, then what that currency is worth today would not be what it's worth the day after it decouples and are people really willing to throw in with that currency versus the dollar. But once again, not really the point of this video. I encourage you to look at uh, Chamas, uh, I believe it was an all-in pod that he discusses this, but just the steel man Balaji's uh, argument, it's not, it's not without uh, merit. He postulates that every city or state in the US will have its own quote unquote stable coin. And in order to live in a city or a state, you'll have to own the stable coin that's issued by that state. And you can't sell that stable coin for at least five years. So basically you'll decide where to live, you'll go there. It'll be kind of like, you're supposed to change your residency when you go to a city or a state. You'll like basically that state or city will issue you a stable coin and you won't be able to leave that city or you will be able to leave, obviously, but you won't be able to live or change your residency anywhere else for at least five years. And he puts forward this idea to uh, basically allow people to vote with their feet and move to places that have effective, in his mind, effective political and economic policies. And kind of like shares in a company, the more people who move to your state, the higher your stable coin will be worth and the less likely you are to move and therefore are more likely to invest in your community. And so basically saying like, if certain states are kind of failed states and people move out of those states, you'll move to a place where it's a more, a better political and economic viable, viable state. And he's kind of saying that centralized government and federal government will play much less of a role. And it'll kind of be like city states in Athens or like the decentralized uh, middle ages where you had you know, barons or lords having certain areas of territory and people living in those territories. And while I think, once again, I think this theory has its incentives in order, the lessons of history teach us that following a, a period of previous economic and political stability, Pax Romana, Pax Americana, the worst thing we can do as a human civilization is decentralize and atomize into little pockets. 
So uh, I put forward one of my own conjectures instead. And I think that's important. Like you can't just criticize something. You can't just criticize a theory or you can't just criticize, like we know that the economy is, we know that the, the current state of things are broken, but you really have to provide solutions. You, you can't just be like, you know, Marx and say, oh, capitalism's broken. We should do communism. What is communism? I don't really know. <laughs> you have to put forward a solution. So I think that's why we really have to just close out this zeitgeist. We have to close out the cycle of postmodernism that we're still kind of floating in. And we need to have a conscious reaction in the other direction in what my contemporaries would refer to as metamodernism. So this would be the new epoch, the new ethos. So some key characteristics would include a decisive desire to move beyond the binary oppositions of postmodernism and, and modernism. And I say binary oppositions almost altogether. Metamodernism seeks to synth metamodernism seeks to synthesize, say that ten times fast, these perspectives rather than choosing one over the other. So like the dialectic, as we've discussed in various episodes, we have uh, rather than digging deeper into a whole of identity politics, binary oppositions and rejecting forcefully the ideas of the past, we should be taking what works and building them together to create, you know, cobbling a better future. So an interesting an, an interest in transcending cynicism and critique, like I said, postmodernism became very obsessed with cynicism and critique of the things that came before. Uh, deconstruction was a big uh, theory before by Jacques Derrida during the, during the uh, postmodern period. But metamodernism aims to rediscover notions of wonder, utopia, and progressive ideals like the Enlightenment, like romanticism. And we can achieve progress. It's the idea that we can achieve progress. We can use science and technology to create a better world here on Earth so long as we are guided by the wisdom of religious and moral teachings that have come before. So it's it's like modernism was not misled, like romanticism and modernism were not misled, like there is progress, we can achieve betterment here on earth, but we do also have to be guided by principles. Like we can't just progress for progress sake, we can't just be trying anything and everything and not really worrying about the ethics of anything. And uh, a belief in simultaneously embracing contradiction and paradox. So a big tenet of, of modernism was there are there there is objective truth. Period. There are no contradictions. It's very like uh, Aristotle, like uh, A plus B equals C. If you uh, famously once again, Ayn Rand, the modernist writer, had a, a, a kind of a, a note about this, which is from more or less from Aristotle, like. If you find yourself in a contradiction, check your premises because we'll find one of them is incorrect. And then, like uh, postmodernism, was very much in the camp of, as I said, deconstruction was about how contradiction and paradox, and about how a story can have multiple meanings, and some those meanings might actually contradict each other because they're just perspectives. And rather than saying one or the other is objective truth, saying maybe both of these can exist as theories, as perspectives, and we're actually looking for a theory or an idea that unites the two and actually, when you think about it differently, makes makes the two make sense together. It's kind of like how theoretical physicists think about like trying to marry like quantum physics and the you know spe uh, special relativity and string theory together. They don't say, oh, well, these kind of don't make sense with each other like how one must be correct. They say, oh, well, we know we think that this is correct and we think that that's correct. So why don't we look for an overarching theme that actually marries the two together? And I think that's what we need to be doing is not is embracing contradiction and paradox and maybe knowing that there is there's more that we need to learn that maybe will make these two things fit together. And so metamodernism recognizes that ideas can be complex, ambiguous, contradictory. And so even if life's not black and white, neither it's neither good nor evil, like, you know, nuance, for example, like, yes, the war in Vietnam was bad for the most part, pretty bad, but also there was, there was a reason for doing it. Like it wasn't necessarily like just some evil thing that we were doing. We were trying to do it for, 
to prevent the spread of communism. And so that doesn't mean we like we can't come to a consensus about what we want our world to look like, even though the world is messy and is not black and white, good or evil. Like we we can come to consensus about what our future wants to look like, regardless of how we want to get there. A, uh, a drive and return towards creativity, playfulness, experimentation, so kind of returning back to romanticism, the roots of romanticism, imagination, uh, encourages moving beyond the rigid categories and exploring new ideas in an open-ended manner. Like, thank you. Stop putting epistemological knowledge in a box. Science can't progress without religious tradition, as we saw with uh, modernism. Biology can't be understood without history. Like, how are you going to understand the theory of evolution without looking at history. Like art and engineering are two sides of the same coin. Stop separating them. Why do you think that so many physicists are also amazing musicians? Like they're stop putting knowledge in a little box. Okay. Like it's great to have PhDs who are really good at one thing, but if you're really good at one thing, then that's all you know. And that's the only perspective that you know, all you're really like, hopefully you can build on we definitely need people to build on one area of knowledge and try to push it forward. But I think it's, this is just how my brain works and maybe I'm biased, but I think it's much better to connect dots from different perspectives and different multidisciplinary forms of knowledge because then things connect and things make sense together. Life does not fit into little categories. Life, didn't, life does not fit into hashtags. Okay. A focus on aesthetics, activism, and belief. Metamodernism cares not just about critique, but about embodiment, activism, and constructs that people can believe in. Like that's kind of a downfall of postmodernism. Is like it kind of it's kind of just like uh, the world is shit, and we got no answer for you. Smoke some weed and have some sex. Like, <laughs> like it's like we need we need constructs that's all that life is or it's that's all society is or just social constructs we need constructs that people can believe in like we all know how badly this that the system's broken right now stop spreading negativity focus on solutions uh an emphasis on community and collaboration metamodernism sees culture and knowledge as co-created through shared experiences and relationships rather than authored by individuals life is co-created so as much as America would love to have us believe it was founded by rugged individuals, which kind of was, but once again, we need some nuance to that, that, that theory. It's not just the cowboy who's, you know, like smoking his Marlboro cigarette. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, big person history. While that's important because there is the counterfactual, it's, there are large, like it's both. There's just, there are rugged individuals, but there's also broad strokes of history that put people where they need to be at the right time. And as every Oscar speech tells us, it takes an army to achieve something of value. Like they start off by thanking everybody who helped them. Like it's not, there may be one person who gets the credit or is actually doing the thing, but it takes an army of people supporting that person to actually achieve something. An awareness of itself as an emerging epoch, which is what we're doing here. Metamodernism understands itself as a new phase in history with its own characteristics, much like modernism and postmodernism. And this is uh, rather unique among zeitgeists because like, it's kind of like people were kind of swept up in a movement, but kind of like knew there were, as Hunter S. Thompson said in the excerpt that I read about, we kind of knew that there was an energy about life, about the zeitgeist. We knew that we were living in a special time, but we didn't really know how to characterize it. And now we're, this is, we're characterizing this movement specifically so we can maximize it. We are aware that we're on the precipice. And as now Ferguson would say, the senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, history is not predetermined. As I've said, it's counterfactual. We can choose to determine the course of history. So while there are natural cycles of boom and bust, like I said, while there are natural currents that are moving things forward, economic currents, geopolitical currents, we don't have to resign ourselves to period of negativity, stagnation, and misery, like which came after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Like we don't have to be victims of circumstance. We can take what's given to us and transmute them into the wonderful gifts for ourselves and the world at large. You know, make, when you're given lemons, make some lemonade. Uh, and an interest in embracing possibility rather than dismissing utopian thought. 
So metamodernism seeks to reclaim idealism, vision, and radical hope, like from enlightenment, like from romanticism, the desire to make meaning in an era of increasing chaos and uncertainty. We, it hopes it aims to develop new frameworks, narratives, and structures that can provide orientation in a complex world because we need that. Like the uh, John Vervanke has a great YouTube channel, the crisis, I think it's called Crisis of Meaning. And it's like, we need structures. We need things to lean on because religion is kind of falling out of favor, even though it does have a lot of wisdom, it does have a lot of drawbacks too. So we need to provide new systems, new frameworks and narratives that can provide orientation in this complex world. That's kind of what modernism was struggling with was the alienation of this modern society. And the beautiful thing about this is we've kind of already been flirting with this idea of metamodernism for a while, like we've been emerging into it, like things like Stargate SG-1, like the, uh, the TV show franchise, The West Wing, like I said, by Aaron Sorkin, the Indiana Jones movies, even the Marvel franchise and like the Chris Nolan, even the Chris Nolan Batman movies, which are kind of postmodern, but they definitely have uh, a, a hope in society, like in The Dark Knight, uh, where the Joker is obviously a complete nihilist and he's trying to, as Batman says, what were you trying to prove when neither of the boats will blow up, neither of them will blow up each other. Like, what were you trying to prove that at the end of the day, everyone's as twisted as you? Like, Nolan's trying to make the point of like, even in these crazy times, like deep down humans are good people. And we've seen the rise of artists like Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole, who are speaking their, their truth about their own experiences and the experiences of the black community in America. And so despite the chaos that's going on, the complexity, we're really at a unique moment in time to be able to really effectuate change in an amazing way. And we're poised to be able to close out this cycle of staunch nihilism. Like we, we, need, we need to be able to use, be using our tools and the knowledge built upon by generations that came before us to synthesize the, the best parts of modern rationalism and the optimism and hope here on earth. But uh, also like the lessons of postmodernism and recognize that contradiction and paradox can live in harmony with one another. Like they're just because two pieces of epistemological knowledge that we currently have might contradict each other. All that means is that there's probably a, ther a theory, there's probably a little piece that we're not seeing that can help marry the two together and it all makes sense. Like life is complicated and there can be meanings that are at times contradictory because of their perspectives. Knowledge and revelation is slippery, and we need to be able to hold contradictory ideas in our in our mind and allow them to in, engage in opponent processing, so we can create a more nuanced theory. So we can we can be optimistic about emerging technologies, like for example, like artificial intelligence, that it will transform our societies for the better. Like we'll have a Malthusian moment, which I'd like to discuss artificial intelligence, you know, pros and cons in detail in a future episode. But we can also be properly, properly skeptical and wary about the implications that such a technology heralds for the future. So we can be both optimistic and skeptical. We don't have to be one or the other. Like we, what we need more than ever at this moment in time in history is, is temperance, is nuance, is opponent processing. It's where we can have respectful discourse about the issues that we're facing today because the issues that we're facing today are formidable. Like we're facing climate change, we're facing nuclear Armageddon and a whole bunch of uh, like existential issues. But every generation has its crosses to bear, so to speak, and we have ours. As uh, Joseph Campbell would say, the challenges we face are uniquely suited for where we are on our journey, whether as individuals, as fractals of society, or as humanity, as, as parts as the society that's created. We will never be met with challenges that are not within our power to overcome. He does not promise it will be easy. He promises it will be worth it. We can use the lessons of our past to be able to move forward and solve our problems for ourselves, our children, and our children's children. And we can do that by embracing and seeking to reclaim idealism, vision, and radical hope for our future. Light and love, my friends. Go in peace. Love and serve. Something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me 
I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody, look what's going down. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speak in their minds are getting so much resistance from behind. Time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going down. What a field day for the heat. Thousand people in the street singing songs and they're carrying signs. Mostly say hooray for our side. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going It will creep. It starts when you're always afraid. Step out of line, the man come and take you away. We better stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going now. Stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody, look what's going. We better stop now. What's that sound? Everybody. 